Welcome to this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Today with us, we have Scott Jr. Erickson. Jr., glad you could join us. Thanks for having me, Max. Happy New Year's, guys. Hey, Happy New Year Thank to you. you. It's good to have 2020 over with. Let's just be honest. I mean, what a, a crazy year that was. So uh, glad that's all behind us, and now we can look forward to 2021. Junior, uh, you've got an interesting backstory as far as uh, what has happened throughout your life, and that's kind of what we're here to talk about. Walk us through your backstory. For, for those folks out there that don't know who you are and everything, uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name's Scott Junior Erickson. Uh, I'm a four-time international president for the Mongols Motorcycle Club. Uh, I'm retired. I was active 32 years, wrote a couple of books, and uh, now I just live a peaceful life. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure much more peaceful than back then. So, uh, kind of going into your backstory, how old were you when you first got a motorcycle? I was 19. 19 years old when I got my first bike. What kind of bike was it? That was a 1978 and a half Super Glide. Ah, Harley Davidson for those that don't yes, know that. Was that your first motorcycle? Did you do any like dirt biking, anything like that? No, I, I had a I had a Nova mini bike. It was my first bike when I was like uh, like seven, and then uh, I got when I was 14. I had a a dirt bike. I got a dirt bike riding, and uh, just had a had a thing for motorcycles. Yeah. So would you say the, the dirt bike thing kind of helped you get into getting on the, the road bike and the, the Harley world or did you just- Well, I don't know if it got me started on the Harley world, but it, it taught me how to ride a motorcycle, which was uh, the first part of the story, you know? Right. Taught so, me how to shift gears and pull a clutch, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, that's, that's half the battle, right? That's right. So, so you get this Harley and you're 19 years old, I'm, I'm guessing uh, you saved up money for it, you bought it used or correct? You know, a actually, uh, that's a funny story because uh, my dad had actually uh, went in house with me. My dad, my dad said, if you can get half the money, he goes, I'll pay the other half of the money. Okay. So my father actually uh, forked up half the bread and I had saved half the bread myself. All right, and so, so you buy the bike, you're riding around and, and something happened to you that made you say, hey, there, there's a little more to this than just riding a motorcycle around and, and you know, shining the bike up and, and I gotta do, I gotta do more. What, what was that moment where you said, you know, there, there's more to life than just riding this up and down the road or back and forth to work? Well, let me tell you my first experience uh, where I really, I think I really got punched in the job with this biker thing was, uh, I was probably about maybe six years old and. At the time, we were living in San Diego. Well, no, actually, when I was six, we were still in Orange County at the time. And I was with my mother in the car. We were at an intersection, and a Hell's Angel pulled up next to us. And I was just, I was looking at this guy with the Hell's Angel, and I was looking out the window. Like I said, I was probably six or seven years old, and I had my face pinned against the window, staring at this guy. And I remember my mom reaching over and slapping me, telling me not to stare. And I think that was the first time I said, wow, look at this, man. It was, uh, it was the closest thing to a a real cowboy in the out west. I mean, this guy was had leathers on and was was dirty. The kid had been on the range for for six months, and I mean, this was this was the real thing. I I, I was just amazed at that young age. So you see this, you're six years old, and then you you go on, and and now you're around 19 years old. Now I'm 19, yeah. and uh, you talk your dad into going in halfers on a bike, and and now you got the bike, and of course, you know, 
at 19, I'm guessing you're out of high school by now, right? And, uh, right. Working some crummy job that you normally do. Working right some crummy-ass job, yeah. I was working on, I had a job at a little place as a mechanic assembler, putting together parts for screwdrivers for about, I don't know, eight, nine bucks an hour, and I saved my money, and that's, uh, that's how we did it. Now you're riding around in uh, how how do you get into the motorcycle club world? With you know, obviously one of the requirements is you gotta have a motorcycle. So you already checked that one off the list. But now, right. now you're so, riding the bike around and, and you get uh, into that world. Walk us through that. The area that I grew up in in San Diego was uh, was upper class, high upper class. My parents were were well off. I was raised in a well off family, but you know, there was something that that drew me across the tracks. I don't know what it was. I kept going to uh, hanging out with people that weren't as well off as I was. And uh, I decided that I wanted, well, you know, I wanted to be an outlaw biker. So, so we kept going down to the beach, down to Pacific Beach, we run into some Hells Angels down there. So I had kind of made it my mind because I, I, I reverted back to my, my six year old experience. And I kind of made it my mind, I wanted to be a Hells Angel. So at 19, I was pretty determined I was going to be a Hell's Angel. So we kept going down the beach where they hung out. And it was a bar called Maynard's in Pacific Beach in San Diego County at the time. So uh, we ran into some people down there and we were hanging around with these guys. You know, we were flying some red rags out of our pockets. And uh, I think I was on my way to, to doing that and ran and had a bad experience out in front of this bar with some of these guys. That wasn't the way I wanted to go. Uh, it was a bad experience with that, that crew of people. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm looking for a brotherhood. And, uh, and the experience I had, I felt uh, there was no brotherhood. I felt that uh, any time I was going to get beat up or uh, had some kind of an issue with these guys. So I decided to, to do something else. And we hung out by, our, uh, by ourselves and rode around for a little while. So you, you were going up to the beach and everything with the handful of buddies of yours and you know y'all are all on bikes and everything it we decide the hell's angels way it isn't the way for you to go and then obviously the mongols was the way that you decided to go what got you first introduced with the club okay so let me explain so the mongols uh, growing up where i lived uh in the, in the area i lived uh, uh it kind of matter where you grew up, what area you lived in is kind of how you went into the bike club. I mean, the area that I lived was pretty much Mongol. If I would have gone maybe three, four, five miles east, I would have been hanging out with more of a Hell's Angel group of people. Uh, to the west would have been some more Hell's Angels. To the south, maybe some more Mongols. It was more of a, I think, a neighborhood type of thing. And uh, the more that, the reason I wanted to be a Hell's Angel more than Mongols is because at the time, they were more renowned. The Mongols was just coming up. It was more of a, it was more of a neighborhood. It was more of a, 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 small, a small neighborhood bike club. I don't think anybody really took us very seriously. You're talking 79, 80. Uh, I don't think anybody thought we were a force to be reckoned with. You know, I mean, when I got in the club in 1980, we'd go to bars and, uh, you know, we had to fight our way out with cowboys. I mean, the cowboys were standing up to us. We had to fight our way out of bars and uh, we were just, you know, a, a small crew. So, you know, I had some guys out of the neighborhood, some older guys that were, uh, that I, were a few years uh, uh, older than I that went Mongol. And once I had a bike and was doing my own thing, word got out, I was in the neighborhood, word got out that uh, 
I was a fighter. I loved to fight and uh, I could kick a lot of ass. So next thing you know, I got these guys from the neighborhood trying to look me up and uh, went to a New Year's party. I think it was, a, well, it had to be New Year's uh, 1980. You, yeah, also, I, you also have to think that like now, I mean, people can almost literally make any contact on the internet, you know, Facebook groups, you know, they can get in touch. But back then, I mean, the whole word of mouth thing and having to wait till like <laughs> word gets back to you about what you can do and where you can do, what you can do. I mean, now it's almost ridiculous. I mean, you can literally sign up, I think, um, on one of the previous podcasts we did, that it's something like about 36% of biker gang members in the United States don't own a motorbike. <laughs> you know, they're almost like uh, associate members who support the group but don't have a bike, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. That's how it's uh, definitely uh, uh, descended into something way different than uh, I started out as. I mean, I'm, I'm sure way back then, you know, we're talking about 1980. You probably never thought that motorcycle clubs would have websites. Hell, I mean, back then there wasn't even a website. It, there was no internet yet. No, and, yeah, and you got to remember when I got into club in 1980, there wasn't a helmet in California. So without helmets, speed limit was 55 miles an hour. And I remember uh, uh, my super glide uh, was, a, I think it was a, it was a four speed. At 65, that thing was winding. So, uh, you know, 55, 65, you know, I mean, it's just the way it was. And like you said, there were no cell phones, no cameras, no nothing. It was a, a rotary dial phone to, to, to call somebody and, uh, or hooking up at the local bar, you know, at a certain time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so kind of stumbling into that world, you, you knew, hey, this is where these guys hung out. Uh, if I'm going to be a part of this, I basically, you know, I can't send an email. I can't join a Facebook group. What I got to do is I got to be where they're at and they've got to notice me and all that good stuff, not, not filling out some form on the internet and, you know, sending in some money and all of a sudden becoming a member. At this time, 1980, you're about 20 years old or so. Oh, uh, you, you join the club and then fast forward about, what, eight or so years later, you go from being in the club, brand new to the club world, to the national president in eight years. No, no, no. We, no? You, missed okay. a, you missed an important part. Oh, I'm sure I did. So yeah. when uh, I first got in the club, we had some serious issues uh, uh, with the Hells Angels. So when I got in, we were, <laughs> we were outnumbered. I mean, just the whole, the whole picture, whole thing, we were probably outnumbered 10 to 1. And then we were just recovering from, uh, you know, we two of our brothers got assassinated in 77. So we were still recovering as a club from that hit, from the hit of, uh, of two brothers getting killed. I mean, you know, uh, you know, we were more of a party club at the beginning. We were one percenters, but were we like the Hells Angels? No. Once they, once the started going down in 77, uh, uh, our club got pushed into a corner and we had to be like them. So uh, when I got in, uh, in 1980, uh, I went from a nice guy uh, to a nasty son of a bitch. And that's what I was. That's why they took me. And I, I did a lot of damage. Well, I'm guessing they probably looked at you as somebody that was going to be an asset to the club. Like you said, you, you know, big guy, like to fight, all that type stuff. And the need arose for somebody like that. So it was inviting for them to bring you along just at the same time. It was inviting for you to go along with it as well. Well, yeah, I was, I was uh, the youngest member in the chapter at the time, probably, probably the best fighter in the whole chapter. 
month. So I, I was like a torpedo. I, I was like a torp, you know? Uh, something happened, I put my head down, they would fire one, and I went right shot right in the middle of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's what I did. That's what I, they brought me in for, and I did the best I could at, 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 uh, at causing damage. Did you do any fighting in your younger years, like any kind of boxing? Anything I did. Like that? Or was this just like a street fight kind of deal? No, I was, uh, I started out bare knuckle fighting in, uh, when I was in high school, we had bare knuckle tournaments in, uh, in the yard, bare, bare knuckle boxing. And then I went into, uh, uh, I went into high school. Our high school had a, had a boxing team in, uh, I went to high school in Hawaii for, for two years and our Hawaii team, Hawaiian high school had a, had a boxing team uh, with the high school. So I, I boxed amateur, amateur golden gloves. And uh, what, what was your record? You remember what your record was? Yeah, I was three and oh. Three and oh. Yes, sir. <laughs> no big surprise there, right? I was three and oh, uh, but you know, you gotta remember, I was like 17 at the time. And uh, uh, we were fighting, uh, we were going on base and fighting uh, uh, soldiers. We were fighting 21, 22, 23 year old soldiers to see we were fighting from the high school. We were the weight, the weight match, you know what I'm saying? Right. So it, looking back on those boxing days, do you ever kind of think, man, could I have taken that next step and, you know, tried to make a career out of boxing? Or was that just not something you wanted to do? No, you know, I liked to, I liked to fight. I didn't mind getting hit. I liked to punch people. But, you know, the problem was I didn't like the training. I didn't like the running. I didn't like the workout. I just wanted to go to the gym and beat people up. I, I didn't want to run. And, and I didn't want to run six miles a day. You know what I'm saying? Scott, do you, do you watch MMA at all? I do, sir. Yeah, because I, I did um, like full contact mixed martial arts from when I was about 16 through about 20. And uh, it always amazed me because we were sanctioned by bodies in the UK, but they wouldn't sanction any official fights with any money behind it. So when MMA came along and it's like, yeah, all right, this is the stuff we were doing like 25 years ago, just punching the crap out of each other, kicking with no pads and all this stuff. I was surprised it took that long to actually get a hold and be sanctioned as a body because, I mean, you know, a real fight, I mean, yeah, you can go back to, you know, all the boxing classics and all that, but a real fight with no gloves and almost anything goes, that's what a fight is. And, you know, I think that's been the attraction of the MMA because that, that's the fight and I did for five years. You know, if I got a broken nose and I was bleeding, you know, unless I was kind of giving up, that fight went on until you know, they decided I was going to be brain dead, you know. And, and so that it always amazed me why it took so long for it to get a sanctioned body so you could actually have people who knew and wanted to fight to have this avenue to be able to go out and do it, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, yeah, you know, nowadays, geez, <laughs> you, don't even, you, don't want to, you don't want to break off a fight with nobody. Nowadays, you know, spin around and kick you in the head, you don't even see it coming. <laughs> You know, you, you pick a fight with a skinny dude and he throws a set on you. And, you know, back in the day when I was fighting, uh, the guy that got off first won. Oh, yeah. And you knew on, you knew on site pretty much if you could win a fight. Well, you know, if I, was going, yeah, if I was going in the bar to fight, I already knew who I was going after. Right, and, uh, yeah. Most of the time, they didn't know who I was going. They didn't know I was coming after them, so that gave me the advantage. Made my, my record pretty good. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So, uh, 
so you, you're doing a lot of fighting. Obviously, you're enjoying it. it it's not like, oh, hey, you know, I got to get in this fight or whatever. I got to beat my way out of this bar, you know, secretly kind of in the back of your mind. So let, me, well, let, me, let me reiterate yeah. something about that is now you got to remember in 1980, you could go to a bar and kick some ass and nothing happened. I mean, if you didn't get caught on the spot, right, it was just a good time. Yeah. You know, you go to I mean, uh, you can read one of my books and you can see what happened to me uh, in the later years. Uh, uh, you can't go to a bar and fight no more or they're going to come knocking at your door three months later. You know what I'm saying? For the yeah. assault charge. Right. Well, yeah. And everybody, of course, quick to call the cops and everything. Back then it was, hey, we settled this ourselves. We settled it out. You know, there was no phones, no cell phones, no cameras. So, you know, you beat somebody up. You know, you, you tear the phone cord out the wall. They couldn't call the cops. You leave, and, and everybody forgets about it. Uh-uh. But nowadays, uh-uh. It ain't like that. Yeah. Well, and don't forget about the part about everybody having that cell phone on them with the camera, that they're filming it, and now that's automatically evidence saying, look, Well, yeah, exactly you're going to be on World Star Hip Hop within, like, about 10 minutes if you start a fight oh, anywhere right. now. You know? I mean, it's... Uh, but it's the thing, like, even if... You know, even outside of fights, I mean, you start getting this kind of Karen patrol where even if you tell somebody to go away or you, they perceive you're rude to a clerk in a convenience store, you're on the internet. I mean, it's almost impossible now to kind of, uh, I, w I won't say get away with anything, but, it, you know, I mean, life's changed to the point where it's not sporadic anymore. You almost have to organize something and you all sign consent forms to actually be able to do anything. You're right. You know, the minute you organize something, if something happens, it puts you in a whole other category of crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. You don't want to mention the word organize anymore. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, they they found ways to uh, make things a little more difficult. Yeah. Thank God. Uh, when I was first coming in, uh, yeah, it wasn't that bad. You know, we were still uh, in 1980. We were still cowboys, and it was still the Wild West. It's not like that no more. Right. Yeah. And of course, you're, you're still in it in the 80s. You know, it wasn't until I would say like the early 90s before cell phones were a thing. You know, of course, in the 80s, they had the cell phone, they had the huge bricks, and it was only the stock traders and the ultra rich that had them. But there was no flip phone or anything like that. Not everybody was carrying those around. So you still had that old school, hey, we're going to meet up here. This is our Friday night hangout. This is where we're going to be. You know, hey, wait. Where do I find Junior? Oh, he's going to be at such and such a place. He's there every Friday night. And if you're not there, they're like, well, I wonder where he's at. I wonder if he's okay. And there's no way to find out, you know, where you're at or whatever. Nowadays. Well, there was because as a chapter, we had a thing we called a check-in. So what we would do on a weekend is one guy would stay home uh, with a list. And then every time we went somewhere, we would call and, and he would write it down. So he knew where everybody was. Oh. If there was an issue, Everybody would get called where they were at and sent and sent uh, to the place. But you know, you got to remember when I got in the club. At first, you know, I was I caught a case in January of '82, uh, uh, and I went to prison. So I was by I was only an active member for two years. By the time I was in prison, the funny thing was, I remember when I prospected. These guys brought me in, into a, a room, and I was surrounded by my chapter at the time. And it was when I finally decided to pull the trigger on on prospecting and uh, I remember one of the brothers 
He says, you know what the hell you're doing? I said, yeah, I do. He says, you sure this is what you want to do? I said, yep, this is what I want to do. And he told me, he says, you know, if you get in this club, he says, the chances of you dying or going to prison are pretty likely. One of those are going to happen to you. Uh, as you can see, I'm not dead, but the other one did happen to me more than once. Yeah. So anyway. So 1982 was your, your first uh, trip to prison. Yes, sir. Uh, walk us through that. Uh, what, what sent you to prison? first of all, and, and walk us through what that was like, prison in you know, the 80s. I had, a, I had the first gang-related murder. And uh, I went on the run. And uh, I was on the run for about six months, I think, when that happened. And uh, uh, one of our people, a real piece of shit, turned state's evidence and gave me up on that case. I think if uh, he would have kept his mouth shut, I could have I walked on that case. So I took a plea bargain for that, for a voluntary manslaughter, and I did 50 months in state prison on that one. You know, and I, I you know, I'm not, uh, I gotta, I gotta reiterate, you know, this, we were at war. I mean, we were at war. This was a war. I'm not, I don't hold any hard, hard feelings towards anybody. You know, I don't got no problem with the Hells Angels. I don't have no problem with anybody. But uh, we were at war, at war. They started it. We were at war and, uh, you know, I did what I had to do, and uh, when I went to prison, now you, let's go back to the beginning again. Here I was, a Mongol. There was tons of Hells Angels in prison. Uh, there weren't no Mongols in the prison. So when we got in there, there was a four of us that went, four counting me that went on this case. We were the underdogs, and I remember, uh, I remember sleeping in the cell on the main line, and I was, uh, we were locked down because we had just got there. We were fish, and uh, I remember there were Hell's Angels coming up to our cell. There was one guy coming up to my cell. I'm not sure if he was a Hell's Angel or a, or a hang around. I kept coming to my cell and uh, kept taunting me, telling me, uh, asked me if I knew what was going to happen to me when I came to the main line, if I was okay, if I knew I was going to get killed because I was going to get killed is what he was telling me. And the funny thing was is I remember I walked up to that cell and looked him right in the face and I said, let me tell you something, dude. I said, I am a killer. I said, are you? And he looked in the eyes and I saw fear. And I said, and when this gate opens, I said, you're the first one I'm coming after. You're the first one I'm going to get. And you know what? That guy never came back to my cell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, imagine that. He never, yeah, more other ones came, but he never came back. It's weird. There's some, like in England, like most of the tribalism in terms of segregation, you know, is related to football or, soccer over here and you know back in the 70s and 80s you know hooliganism you know in England was pretty rife like if you went to a game you could expect to get in a fight on the way back to the train station or the parking you know lot whatever and I mean you, you were always like I'm going to go to a game and there's a good chance I'm going to get in a fight on the way back and that's how it always used to be you'd go week to week yeah, there's probably a chance I'm going to get in a punch-up and, you know, I might go get a beer before the game and be in a place where I'm outnumbered 30 to 2 or whatever. And it just became, it was part of the culture at the time. But I think the difference was, you know, I know a lot of people who were involved in, like, firms, which is the, like, you know, soccer kind of gangs and stuff. And But the thing is, when they went to prison and stuff, it all kind of softened out a little bit. There wasn't 
still that antagonism, you know, once they got behind bars, it was all almost like organized as in like, you know, when we get out, yeah, we're arch enemies, but when they were in prison, it kind of softened out a little bit, but it seems like, you know, your experience, it like, it doesn't matter whether you're in prison or out of prison, that kind of antagonism just carries in and it makes kind of like, you carry it for life almost, I don't know. Oh, you know, it's funny because, you know, when I got out of prison, there were some of the people in the club that argued and said, well, you know, while you're in prison, that shouldn't act, of, that shouldn't, uh, act as an active time in the club. And my argument to that was, what do you mean it's not active time? My argument was, hey, dude, I couldn't hide. I faced some guys every day in there. I represented who I was on the yard, at the chow hall, everywhere I went, in the visiting room, everybody knew who I was, I represented. And you know what? They came. They came at me, they tried. I'm still here. I never PC'd up off any yard. I never locked it off off any yard. And I, 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 I walked every yard I'd been on uh, with, my, with my chest out uh, and everybody knew who I was. And if they had a problem, they could bring it. They can bring it to me now. I don't care if anybody's got a problem with this interview. Uh, I'm an easy guy to find. Come see me. And uh, I'm sure we can work it out one way or the other. So you do, of that 50-month sentence, do you do all 50 months? Yes, sir. 50 okay. months. So, so you're 50 months in. Now, now you get out. And now wh where are we at? Uh, okay, so I got out. So? I went back to San Diego. And at the time, I went back to my parents' house. Uh, you know, it was funny because I didn't know anybody else. Here I was, you know, I got in the club when I was 19. I cut loose all my childhood friends. You know, I live in Hawaii, so I and came back when I was 18. Uh, so all my childhood friends, pretty much, I didn't, wasn't in contact with anymore. So, you know, pretty much the Mongols and the brothers were the only friends I had. So uh, when I got out, uh, I had a non-association, of course, so I got a little job. Uh, I learned how to weld in the pen, so I got a little job in the shipyards welding and had a non-association for about a year. And then as soon as my uh, non-association, uh, pardon me, my parole, uh, I discharged after a year, uh, I became a San Diego chapter vice president. All right, and yeah. so we're, we're somewhere around 86, 86. That would have been 80... I probably would have been early 87, late 86, early 87, uh, I became a, a San Diego vice president. All right, so now, so now you're, you're VP, you're back on a bike, uh, back with your club brothers and everything. You've got this prison sentence behind you. Bad bump in my life, but, but now, you know, I'm just looking forward, I'm moving forward and, and take us, uh, you know, up to where you became, you know, president and all that very shortly thereafter after i was uh the vice president something happened and uh a crew of them came down from our mother chapter which is based out of la and uh, uh they came to me and uh, uh the guy who was national president at the time me and him were friends uh, our real i mean not just brothers but we were friends i mean we known each other for a long time we spent some time with each other in oklahoma and he was national president, so he, they came down on a crew, and uh, uh, it was actually, I think, it was my birthday. We were having a birthday party in San Diego, and he came down with a bunch of guys from Mother Chapter, or Big Boss did, and uh, brought, uh, we partied for, for a couple hours, had a good time, and uh, they brought me in a room. He brought me in a room with a couple of guys and says, hey, he says, I brought a special 
uh, Christmas or a birthday present for you. I said, okay. And uh, he says, uh, I've got some personal issues going on right now and I need a little break uh, that I have to deal with my family and stuff. And uh, I want you to take the national presidency. And I went, what? You know, so you gotta figure, I'm 28 years old. They want me to be the national president, uh, but, but I don't want to move to LA. I'm living in San Diego. And I can't, I go, you gotta be kidding me. I said, me? And, and, the, and the guy says, under one condition. He says, when I want it back, he goes, you gotta give it back. He goes, no elections, because you know, it's a democratic, at the time the Mongols was a democratic club. You elected your president, everybody voted, and that was the way it was. So uh, this got given to me. And the deal was when he was ready to take it back, I would give it back. And uh, so it was a temporary, uh, temporary status. And my first term as national president at 28 years old. So the weight of that though, being in your late twenties, I mean, we're all obviously well past 20. And you think when you're in your twenties, you know what you're doing until you get to your thirties, then you realize you don't. And you think, you know, in your thirties until you get to your forties and so on and so forth. But huge weight on your shoulders as a you know late twenties individual. Spend a couple of years in the national presidency, and I'm guessing the dude came back and said, "All right, uh, I want it back." Yep, that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Were, were you disappointed that he wanted it back? Did you think maybe he was just going to permanently retire, or you? No, nah, no, nah, I was disappointed. I said, "Go ahead, take this." <laughs> <laughs> It was like a like a freaking hot plate, you know. Here, have it back. Yeah, no, uh, that's a heavy weight, uh, you know. And uh, you know, I always said when I was national president, and uh, I was president four different terms. Uh, but uh, my my goal as a national president was uh, if I could keep all my guys out of jail and keep all my guys alive for my term, uh, I did my job, and uh, I kept to that. Uh, nobody died. Uh, nobody went to prison, but you got to remember when I was national president, our club wasn't the size that it, it, it is now. We were a smaller group of guys, so I didn't really have uh, uh, that, that much volume to, to have to deal with. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. You know, back then, a little easier to, little easier to manage and, and all that good stuff, but still a tremendous responsibility. Absolutely. I used to take pride in saying when I was national president, I used to take pride in saying I could stand up every member in our club against the wall and call them all off by name. Uh, whoever's national president now, I don't know if they could do that. I mean, you know, they've got people overseas. They're huge overseas now. They're in, they're everywhere. I, I lost track of what's going on. Uh, but I, I don't think he has that type of a uh, deal like I had personally with my members. Well, and as anything grows, it's obviously a lot harder to keep track of all those names and, and remember everybody and know, okay, now where are you from again? Or are you from Arkansas? Or are you from, you know, Ireland? Uh, they, they we're spread all over the place. But back in those days, like you say, a little more tight-knit, uh, which to be honest with you, one thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, that's one of the most inviting things of getting into the motorcycle club world. You, you share the love for a motorcycle. Obviously, you got to have a bike to, to be in the club. But what most of those guys are seeking out is that brotherhood. Would you say that's correct? I mean, a, a uh, lot of those guys are. Are you talking are about now or back then? Back then. Back, back, back then, yeah. Back then, uh, 
it was a whole different thing. I mean, nobody, we didn't have no money. Uh, I was national pre president of the Mongols. Uh, I didn't have a salary. I got a couple of breaks here and there from them guys when I was a boss. You know, uh, I think they paid for my phone bill and uh, a couple things like that. But I never got any money uh, from being in that club. Uh, I'm not so sure that's what's going on now. But in retrospect, I look back and, you know, I didn't make, I didn't make one. I wasn't, I wasn't a wealthy president. You know, I lived in a moderate house. I drove a moderate vehicle, had a moderate motorcycle and uh, just lived moderately. You know, I was just, uh, that's all I did is I was one, I was one of the guys. I was a president, but I was one of them, which uh, actually uh, probably caused my demise in some issues. Why do you think the West Coast was more prolific in terms of birth of some of the more notorious kind of groups? Because, you know, even since the 50s, you know, the West Coast, California has been a, a case of, you know, like polar opposites in terms of, you know, politically and economically. Why do you think it kind of gave rise on that West Coast? I mean, you know, almost anywhere in the entire United States, I mean, in Texas, I mean, yeah, we can fit six times of the United Kingdom in Texas. So if you were in a biker gang in England, you know, you could go see somebody in half a day. If you set off at seven o'clock in the morning, you know, you could go <laughs> anywhere in the country by noon, right? Whereas in the United States, it's like, yeah, I'll come see you. It's going to take me eight days to get there. But do you think that, you know, some of the more leisurely type bike clubs when they started appearing like in the 40s and 50s, gave way to these kind of clubs which had i don't know eventually turned into gangs because they actually had places where bikers actually wanted to drive and so you know that attracted that type of lifestyle but you know there i mean there's no big as far as i know you know big biker gangs out of rhode island i mean it's just a, <laughs> but it, so, it, it what, so your question is why why is uh, the west coast say california why why did it kind of originate there in my opinion is that your question yeah yeah why where it came out of there because i mean okay you know, so it's got such a diverse population my, and it has been actually, for like 70 years you know yeah you know actually i think if you look back in the 60s you know you had the free spirit type of thing you know you had you know you had uh, you know, the Manson free spirit, everybody's doing everything. I'm not, you know, Manson was a piece of junk. I'm not saying that, but the whole hippie, I think. Uh, and another thing about the West Coast is the weather's good. I mean, you can ride a motorcycle all year round. So yeah. when you're riding a motorcycle all year round, uh, you got your hands in the pudding all, all year round versus uh, New York when you got snow half the year. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking maybe it was the weather. It was the free spirit in the 60s where everybody felt free. They just wanted to express yourself, you know, and then, you know, you had Sonny Barger and, uh, you know, in the sixties and, uh, and that kind of stuff. And, um, the concert, the Rolling Stones concert, and I think it was 68 or 69, you know, it's, it's it just, I think it's just California had the free spirit. And I think the free spirit just kind of erupted the free spirit and motorcycle. Right. So that's just my opinion. If I, if I try to analyze it, I, I, no, I, I think you're on to something there. I mean, it, Texas has a lot of good riding weather. I mean, we can almost ride year-round if you're willing to, you know, throw a coat on in the wintertime, and we get maybe one snow every three years here uh, in North Texas. You know, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so it, at least there's some good riding weather, but it's nothing like California, like you say. No. Uh, you, no, you know, the better the weather, 
uh, the more they're out in the bars, the more they're on the streets, and the more drama. So that's my opinion. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, six months out of the year of snow, them dudes ain't coming out the house. You can't ride a bike on uh, on black ice, and they're staying out of the you know they're staying out of the bars, and uh, you're not going to get the uh, the drama or, or the amount of stuff going on. I don't think in a, in a place like California or or the West Coast. So moving on, kind of getting into the the early 2000s now. Uh, you're kind of a, at the end of another term of being national president and everything. And now the rise of popularity of the MC motorcycle world starts to hit. You've got shows and I know you were on a couple of those shows, the outlaw bikers and all, all that stuff. And people are really getting interested in it. It, it goes from something of you know, you being a six-year-old kid looking out the window at the Hell's Angel on the motorcycle, and we all knew they were there. We just didn't really know much about them. To now, it's just in mainstream media, it's being forced down your throat. You've got American Chopper; they're building motorcycles. You've got Sons of Anarchy; they're making a TV show about the world. And as somebody from that world, you're sitting there. You got to be scratching your head, saying, "Wait a second, what's going on?" I, I just I wanted to be in a biker club and have fun. And now, you know, it's all over the TV. I'm on National Geographic and old Kurt Sutter out there is writing a program and putting this together and kind of, I'm not going to say exposing our world, but throwing it in everybody's faces of, hey, this thing's been out there. It, what, what were your thoughts about kind of that portion of the, the history there? Yeah, well, in 2000, I was crashing my head, but I was crashing my head in a prison cell. So I went back to the pen in 98 for another case, uh, but we'll skip that for now. And if you want to get back, if you want to start on the Sunday Anarchy thing, uh, you know, I, I watched the show a little bit, uh, a few episodes here and there, and uh, that some of it made, some of it was a little accurate, but most of it wasn't. Like anything with Hollywood, right? They, they got a Hollywooded up make it seem more interesting, glorify some stuff in there, you know, for TV, basically. Yeah, I guess I jumped around on the timeline in the wrong way. So 98-ish is when you went in for the second time. And yeah. of course, that's the, the infamous, I'll call it, Billy Queen case. Well, yeah. Uh, Billy Queen had just come into the, Billy Queen had just basically come into the scene in our club. I never met. I never met him. I never met him when I was a president, and I never saw him, and he was never around. He didn't come into the club till after I was gone, back in the pen. So the the, the only time I ever saw Billy Queen was when uh, he came into court at my bail hearing. I came back to court on a, on a writ of habeas corpus from the state pen, and he came into my bail bail hearing in a three piece suit, all shaved up, to testify. Uh, that I was national president and that I was a flight risk because I was trying to get bail on a, on a writ of habeas to get out. So that's the only time I really laid eyes on Billy Queen. And so, so you're going back in now, this is going to be your second stretch, right? I mean, you, you, is your mind going back to that first stretch? Like, Oh man, here we go again. I got to go through all this again. Or, or did you have, you know, a I, maybe, maybe it was like that, but you know what, when you're in that, when you're going back and you're in that, that position, 
you put your mind in that position of, of, of the situation you're going to be in. I mean, I'm going into this thing. I'm not looking the past. I'm looking everything straight in the eye. And uh, I got to go into to Mongol mode. And I got to go into uh, I don't give a shit mode. And that's what I do when I go to the pen. I mean, I turn into what I need to be. To now, how old, how old were you that second time, Scott? The second time, uh, I would have been 96. I would have been 36. All right. Because so I was born in 60. Your second sentence then was for how long? That was 14 years. So what they did to me on that one was uh, we were in a bar and uh, we had an issue with the guy in there. And uh, I was with the brother and uh, the guy had some kind of an eye problem. I don't know if he had something in his eye or if, if, if it was hot or had some, a teardrop in his eye or something. But whatever it was, he kept staring in our direction. It didn't really bother me, but it, it, bo it bothered the, the brother I was with. So uh, the brother I was with went to confront him about his, uh, his eye issue. And uh, the guy pulled the knife and started uh, stabbing at the bro. Uh, I was right there, and I busted a glass uh, on the guy's face and dropped him. And, uh, and uh, that was it. That was that story. And so that, that's what you got, got you sent up for the – the 14 years now did you do all of the 14 years no what happened was now in that case because i was national president at the time somehow the guy's knife disappeared so we said there was a knife uh, everybody at the bar said there wasn't uh the cops said there wasn't uh so later on what we did is uh, i took a plea bargain on that or I didn't, pardon me, I didn't take a plea. I took it to the box and got the 14 years. So later after I did, I did about, let's see, I did about three years in state prison. And then I got an attorney, an appellate attorney. We got a detective, an investigator, and uh, uh, they came up with witnesses that saw the knife, did a, a motion for a new trial because the knife, we had witnesses that saw the knife and saw the incident. Judge gave me a motion for a new trial. I came back from prison for a new trial, got granted a writ of habeas and, and got out uh, after three years and uh, waited for, for new trial. While you're waiting for the new trial, you're, you're treated as basically kind of like being on bail, so to speak, or whatever you're- Yes, I got no association, no third party contact with the brothers. I can't call nobody. And if I do, automatically violated. Gotcha. Back to the pen, no questions asked. Okay. so. You go for your new trial. What happens on the new trial? Well, I never made it to the new trial. So during this time I was out was actually the time that uh, the incident in Laughlin happened with the Mongols and Hell's Angels. Uh, the, my wife at the time wanted to go to that thing, and I didn't want to go. I said, it's not a good idea. I, like I said, I had an N.A., and uh, we thought about going, but we stayed home and missed that Laughlin thing, and uh, – Thank God I, I missed that one, or I probably would have been caught up in that right in the middle of that too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's how that went. So you served the three years of that sentence and then uh, never had to go back. No, no. Then what happened was I went to a, me and my wife at the time, we went to a, a bar in Long Beach, and there were some brothers uh, at the bar. And like I said, I had non association. I told my wife, I said, well, let's just go. I go, I see it. They're over there. They, they didn't see me. I wasn't wearing a patch at the time. And I had pulled in the park lot and I'd seen them over there. I said, let's just go. I don't want an issue. She goes, well, let's just go to the opposite end of this place and have a drink. So I said, all right. 
So we parked the bike and I kind of went around the outside hoping nobody saw me. And we ordered up a drink and I had my back to the brothers and uh, all of a sudden the brother comes up and says, hey, Junior, remember me? And I turn around and now I got one at the table and he asked me if I come over for a drink and uh, I said, one drink and I got to go. I went over to the table and had a drink and we left. That was on a Sunday. And then on Monday, uh, my attorney called me into court saying uh, they were ready to make a deal before the new trial. I was hoping to get a deal and get time served, just get discharged of the stupid thing. And uh, But when I got there, they had, more, they had a little surprise for me. They had a photo of me at the bar with these guys. They revoked everything, put me back in the pen. Uh, I pled for another deal. I got six, I took six years on the deal. I had to go back for another three. So now you get out after those six years and obviously not six years together. You had the three, then another three and you get out and what's going through your mind now? You know, I'm on parole. I had a couple of issues with uh, uh, the guy that was now in charge at the time. Uh, I had a couple of issues. That was Doc Cavazos. Uh, when I got out, he was the national president at the time. And I had some issues with the guy. I, I didn't think the guy was straight up. I thought the guy was full of crap. And I never, I didn't have a problem letting him know about it. So me and him had some issues. And uh, at the time I was, I was on parole. So I stayed away from the club and, and I just worked and uh, I did a, I did a three year parole on that. And then after I got off parole, me and my wife went ahead and uh, moved to Salt Lake City. My new wife at the time moved to Salt Lake City. Yeah. Now, Scott, when, when you went back in prison each time, um, was it easier in terms of, you know, having maybe a little bit of a reputation? Because, you know, two, I've, I've got five brothers, right? And two of them have spent probably more time in prison than they have out of prison. But when, when you went back in, was it easier when you went back in in terms of people knowing, all right, just leave them alone? No, my reputation had preceded me. I mean, I was okay. I had some issues when I hit the yard when I first got back, but uh, when I got when I had to go back for the for the, the second three to finish it, I had some issues when I went back. Uh, but I confronted them. You know, the thing is, is you got to confront them. Uh, I felt like this. You know, if you got an issue with me, I'm just going to confront the problem before they had enough time to to get a crew where they could catch me slipping. If it was one guy at Hell's Angel in the yard, the day I got there, I confronted him with the, within 10 minutes when I hit the yard, I was on him. Yeah. We're gonna, what's, what's going on, let's do it. Let's do it or let's, we can't get along, let's get it on. That was my attitude. Right. Uh, yeah. li literally just face that problem head on, get it over with so we can move on down the road. And, and That's right. I mean, I mean, let's do it right now. I mean, if, if, if one of us is going to the hole, we're both going to the hole, let's do it. I'm not going to wait and worry about it. I didn't worry about nothing anyway. I still don't. But but you know what? Face it head on. Let's, let's get it on. Let's get it over with. Or uh, let's shake hands and uh, do our own thing. Now you're out. And uh, wh where does your life go from there? Do, do you feel like you want to go back to the club? Do you think, you know, I've, I've got to put all this stuff behind me? Uh, no, like I said, I was having some issues with, with, with Dr. Uh, I wasn't really digging what was going on. You got to remember now, I'm a, I was a president that I was one of the guys. I mean, when we went to a bar, I was the first one in, I was the last one out. If there was a fist fight, 
I was right in the freaking middle of it. And I was a president. You know, now you got into a world later on of national presidents that never came out of the house that uh, uh, were armchair quarterbacks. You know what I'm saying? I never did that. I had to play in the game. I had to throw the football when I was out there. And I think that's why when uh, our club was only 250 members and I was the president, I think we were more respected and more feared than we are now because uh, everybody knew what I'd do. I'd lead them right into, I'd lead them to whatever, you know, in the day. I, like I said, I was the first one in, last one out. It's, it ain't like that no more. Right. So you go through all this in your life and something comes along in your mind and says, I'm going to write a book. So what was that thing that triggered in your mind saying, man, I, you know what? I'm going to write a book. Okay, so on, my, on the end of my second term, on the three years before I got out, on the end of it, uh, it was my parole day. And uh, I don't want to get too much into this because this is in my second book, but it was my parole day. And I went to discharge and I had my dress outs on, got to the gate. And at the last minute, they told me I, they told me I owed them four more months. So I literally was dressed out at the gate with my bag when they turned me around, sent me back in for four months in the state pen. As you can probably figure, the day you're getting out and they tell you you got four more months, it's pretty devastating. Uh, you don't know if you're angry. You don't know what kind of feelings you're feeling. You know, you don't know if you want to rip someone's face off or, or you just want to sleep or you don't know what you want to do. It's just, you know, it's the biggest fear, of I think, of any inmate or convict they're going to do that to you and it happened to me so uh here i am the day i get out i got four more months left they slapped that on me so i'm walking the yard and i'm telling these guys can't believe it i'm walking with some friends and they're going they can't believe what happened to me they're going man they go this is crazy one guy says you ever think about writing a book and i said uh yeah what you got to write a book about all this that happened to you about your life and this four months you got to do again so i started writing a book i sat in the day room that last that extra four months i had to do and i i used a golf pencil on a freaking uh legal pad a yellow legal pad and i wrote with that golf pencil every day on that four months and when i got out for that four months i had about three quarters of a book done now did you find that therapeutic or was it more of a I just want to say what I've been through because you, you get a lot of writers and they're some of it is like exercising their demons. I mean, you know, the shepherd Max, you know, he, he had a trilogy of books and that's just because he can write and he's inventive. You know, I had books which were children's stories and it wasn't till about 30 years later, I kind of saw the pattern in some of the stuff I was writing and I was actually trying to get some of the things I couldn't express out off my chest. Now, were you doing it as like a therapy or you just thought kind of, you know, I just want to tell my story? No, so this is kind of interesting. I'm, I'm glad you asked me this. Um, actually, it was therapeutic. I was looking for something to, to, to pass time. You know, I was always good. I could write poems. Like, I was always good at telling a story. I could always paint a picture with words where people saw. Always, I could do that. And I actually had a hustle when I was in the pen. I would write poetry for guys to send to their wives oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I would make money doing that. Uh, so it was pretty much therapeutic. 
So it was more like memoirs. I was just writing. And I started at far as I could remember, started stair-stepping, trying to do whatever. And then, uh, so I got about a chapter written in this thing. And I, and I was living in a dorm. I was a level two at the time. I was dorm living in the pen. And everybody reads. I mean, if you can get a book in the pen, a good book, I mean, you got Stephen King, James Patterson books, uh, Dean Koontz. If you can get your hands on one of those, it's a score. It's hard to get good books. The good books are hard to find. There's a waiting list to get them in the pen. So I wrote this. So what happened was some of these reading guys, I would throw a chapter of my book at these guys. Hey, what do you think of this? So one guy read the book, read the chapter. And then he gave it to another guy, read the chapter. Then they brought me back the chapter. Then by next Friday, those two guys were at the end of my bunk. And they said, hey, dude, you got another chapter done yet? And I said, I do. So those guys read the second chapter, they passed it on. By the end of the third week, there were four guys at the end of my bunk going, hey, dude, you done with another chapter yet? And uh, these guys were avid readers and I was drawing their attention. They're going, dude, you got something here. I said, you think so? And they said, you got something. Now, did, did that surprise you in terms of, cause you know, a lot of writers, actually famous writers, they don't start until a later age. There's very few, you know, either prolific or famous writers who start when they're like 15 or 18, a lot of it comes in the later age. Did it kind of surprise you that, oh my goodness, this is an outlet for me to, you know, j just express myself and you know what, there's other people who relate to this and uh, Man, I've got an audience. It surprised you know? me because, no, it didn't really surprise me because I, I'm the type of guy that can, can accomplish anything I set my mind to. You know, everybody says, you know, there's an old saying, hey, if you want to make money, go to prison and write a book. You know what I'm saying? That wasn't my intent. It just ended right. up that way. <laughs> it ended up that way and I made some money off of it a little bit here and there, you know? So, so you know, we got out, I got out the pen and I had this book uh, about three quarters of the way done. The first, the first edition, uh, the very first, first book. And uh, Cavazos somehow got word that I had written a book so he published one and put it on the market before I did. And it got picked up by, uh, I'm not sure it was Simon and Schuster or Random House picked it up and uh, it flopped. The book flopped, they didn't get sales on it. So when mine got done, I tried to get someone to publish it and uh, they wouldn't touch it. They said, well, you know, I, somebody contacted me. I think it was Simon and Schuster contacted me and said, you know, we just did a book, a Mongol book. It didn't do well. We're just going to, we don't think there's a lot of market right now for that. Uh, so we're going to pass on it. So I kind of sat on that thing for, for a couple of years. And then uh, one year for Christmas, behind my back without me knowing, my wife had took my memoirs to a publisher and got one single hard copy published in my book and gave it to me for Christmas. Oh. And then once I saw the one book, when I actually saw it in my hand, you know, when I actually saw the book in my hand, I realized this is real. So we've decided to publish ourselves and uh, uh, it took off and it's doing really well. You know, I found that when I write a book, when I, the, my books are true. My, I, and, uh, I think people like, like the story. They like to hear what I went through and, uh, and what it's like to be uh, who I was. You finish up the first book, the wife puts it in it and trust me, Junior, I, I know that feeling, you know, when you actually are holding that in your hand and you look at it like, man. It's freaking real. It's, yeah, it's real. 
it, it's it's different than the, the legal pad and the golf pencil and all that stuff but it, holding that book in in your hand yeah it's a good feeling so you're looking at that book and obviously you know you've written two so what brought you to say you know what i gotta go ahead and, and do this again you know because i i know back from my days when i wrote the books and everything you write a book and you're like man I'm happy that I have this book. I'm holding it in my hand, but I'm kind of glad this is over because it's not the easiest thing in the world, as you well know. I mean, you can validate. I'm sure you can validate. Your partner can validate. Writing a book ain't easy. It's hard. It's hard, shit, man. I mean, you got to sit down every day. You got to set some time aside every day, and you got to remember, or or and you got to follow your lines, your 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 outlines of the book. Then that's just part of it. You got to get it edited. You got to get it. You know, in Kindle, you got it. It's it's a it, you know it, it takes a it takes about a year to get this thing from beginning to end, and uh, it, it, it's not an easy thing to do to write a book. I know you 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 know exactly what I'm talking about, Max. <laughs> <laughs> so so you finish up book two, you got it out. So now now you got two books under your belt. Other than that, what's been going on with you recently? I mean, tell well, us tell us about Junior in the present day. Okay, well, let me go back a little bit. So I went to a, uh, after the cabal, after I discharged uh, my parole in 2007, uh, and the problem I had with Cavazos, I pretty much decided, hey, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with the club. I need to just move somewhere and start fresh. You know, I had a friend in Salt Lake City that I'd grown up with. His name's Kurt Curtis, and in my first book at the beginning, uh, you might remember that me and Kurt were at the lake fishing, but when this whole thing started, but so Kurt was out there in Salt Lake and had become a project manager of a big company. And I went out there to weld. So I moved out there in 2007 in Salt Lake. And then by 2008, the club, uh, they had arrested, uh, the club had got a Rico. Cavazos was gone. It was under new leadership. So I would, I mean, I still really wasn't interested in really going back active. You know, I, I just discharged my parole. And then, um, you know, one day I just got a little fire in my belt and, put on my patch, went down to a local bar down there in, uh, in Salt Lake City and, uh, in a little town called Magna. And uh, one thing led to another. Next thing you know, we had five freaking chapters. I think it was seven chapters in Salt Lake City within two years. Wow. So I kicked that off. And then as of today, they, some of the chapters had filtered, has filtered into Idaho. So I, I started Salt Lake City, and then I was uh, back up in the club again. Now I was uh, uh, in Mother Chapter but I was a nomad out of mother chapter in Salt Lake. Gotcha. And then as, so as of today, I'm retired. I got a little job. I, I'm a manager of shipping and receiving at a, at a casino and uh, my office overlooks the river and, uh, and it ain't things that things are good. That's good. When, when you, when you got your job that you're doing now, did, did people kind of, come up to you and say, hey, man, tell me some stories, all that. Do, do you get any of well, that? Well, I don't, uh, they didn't know. Nobody really was putting two to two together, I don't think, when I took the job. It was funny because just about a month ago, I had a couple, there were a couple painters that worked for the facilities were looking through my office window looking at me, and I, I know who they are. We talk all the time. They're looking at me, and uh, the guy opens the door and puts a camera in the door, and the, the picture on the camera is from Nat Geo. And they had saw the show and they go, hey, is this you? And I said, I said, ah, I guess you guys found me. <laughs> I, I've been at the company for eight years and no one had ever said nothing. So now they're just starting to click on this TV show that was filmed in 2007 on Nat Geo. People are 
they came up to you go, dude, what are you doing here? I said, hey, I said, I'm just a normal guy, you know? You know, with uh, what I, my job at the casino and the, 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 the money, the, the little bit of money I get from the books, we, we, we do okay. You know, my That's wife, good. we do okay. Now, now, Scott, why do you think there's not been a great translation from, I guess, books to movies in the same way as, like, maybe cars? Because, you I mean, you take, you know, successful franchises like The Fast and the Furious, and there's always been, like, years and years of, like, these great car movies, but... You know, there's not really been that many great biking movies. I mean, it's the same thing with sports. I mean, you take something like soccer, right? It's the most played sport in the world. Every country plays it, but the movies are always crap, right? You take football, you know, there's some good movies. There's some good basketball movies. There's almost no good ice hockey movies. But, you know, with biking, I mean, there hasn't really been that many good movies out there across decades compared to like i said with the whole kind of car thing what do you think that is that i just don't think there's a calling there's that many people interested uh in uh, the bike world is i think it's kind of a fading thing i think uh, uh, uh bikes have gone to more of a a wealthy group of people right uh, maybe when the sons of anarchy was out yeah. uh, would have been a good time to come out with a, a movie. I think when everything was up, everybody was falling sons of anarchy, but the whole vibe of motorcycles have changed from when I got in. You know, when I got in in the 1980s, it was dirty Levi's. Nobody had new bikes. I mean, the only bikes we had, we put together. You know, I borrowed a motor from my, my, my bike. My first bike was new, but, but after that, I had used bikes. We built them, we traded parts. And I just don't know if there's a market now for the outlaw. I don't know. I classify it maybe like a Western. You don't see Westerns on uh, on the big screen much anymore. Yeah, I, I think it's more about, I think, about being uncomfortable. I mean, a lot of people, you know, think, all right, yeah, I could get behind the wheel of a sports car and drive it fast and stuff, put themselves in those positions. But I think people realize very early on, when when you were talking about when you were first attracted, you know, biking and stuff i think i've made my mind up by age six that yeah i don't want to go on a motorbike it's not for me and i think a lot of people come to that decision pretty early on you know and it's it, it kind of separates out i don't think you know outside of the middle class riders who you know you get the whole kind of wild hogs type you know audience who go out there i, I think most people decide at an early age it's either for them or not for them Whereas a car, it's like, it's inevitable you're going to be driving a car at some point. Whereas with a bike, that has to be a decision. I think, I agree. I agree with you right there. You know, like, like when I got in the club, I wanted to be an outlaw. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a, a badass dude. That's what I wanted to be. And I, I practiced it. Uh, I learned it. And I taught it. And, and, I, and, uh, and I'm a badass. And, and, and uh, I'm an old badass. Uh, my... My days are done. I'm an old cowboy. I'm retired, but uh, I did it. I, I, I walked it. I, I talked it and I lived it. And I'm sure, and I'm still here to talk about it. So that's, that's yeah. gotta be worth something. Yeah. And kind of going back to one of those things that was told to you a long time ago. Yeah. You get out by either going to prison or you die and you, you did one of those two, but at least you're here to live the tale. So well, it's kind of ironic. The guy that uh, told me that is dead. So it happened. One happened to him and one happened to me. So 
Yeah. So do, do you still ride today? I do, sir. Uh, what, what do you ride these days? I got me a, an 05 Road King, carbureted. Nice. <laughs> carbureted Road King, everything's good, man. We're doing, me and my wife are doing well. That's great. That's great. So, Junior, as we close, uh, can you tell everybody where they can find the books, where they can find more information about you and all that good stuff? Okay. Volume one, volume two, read volume one first. You're going to love them. The real deal, no BS. This is how it went down. This is how I wrote it. Get them on Amazon or you can get them on my website, scottjuniorerickson.com. You get them off the website. I'll autograph it. Cool. Buy these books. They're great. Buy Max's books. They're great. Okay. Buy the Wolf's books. They're great. And you know what? Everybody have a happy new year. It's good. Yeah. It's been well, a pleasure thanks. having you on, man. Yeah. Thank you very much, Junior. Uh, certainly appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And here we are, 2021, uh, January 1, to take some time yeah. out of your day and spend that with us. We're just kind of hoping that things can't get worse is not I don't, challenged. I don't think they Wolf, I don't think they can, man. I, I'm looking for it to be better. When you're at the bottom, you got to go to the top. Right. We hope so. But, you know. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, all your information is going to be tagged along with the show notes and everything on this. Once again, Junior, we certainly appreciate you joining us for this. You got it. And Max, I'll see you soon, buddy. Thank you. Thank you, sir.